This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years. I can't believe it. And I started Self Work about five and a half years ago to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be extremely interested in psychological or emotional, mental issues. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who might just have been diagnosed with something, or there's a problem either with you as an individual or in your relationship, that you're having struggles with, but also to a third group of you, to those of you who might think therapy is really kind of mm, questionable to be kind, and you don't really think it works. I love that scene from Ted Lasso where he at first confronts the therapist and says, I just think it's a bunch of deep bullshit and I don't agree with it. And he walks out and she just kind of looks at him. (laughs) And then eventually he comes back and recognizes the value of actually connection and sharing. Maybe I'll embed that in your show notes. It's pretty funny. So welcome to all of you. This Sunday is Mother's Day here in the U.S. And I was trying to think how I might like to honor that particular day this year. And I thought, well, I've already done an episode of my mom's addiction until I looked and realized, quite to my shock, I'd never talked about that particular thing here on Self Work. I've talked about us being enmeshed, which we were for many years. We were way too close. But my mom was first a victim of 1960s medicine's disregard, ignorance, and ultimate misogynistic attitude toward what women were going through during that time period. Of course, there were other vast problems as well, with racial and ethnic mistreatment and malpractice commonplace, and I've included an article from the New York Times about that. But you know what? I can't tell those stories. I grew up white in an upper-middle-class Southern family, so that's the only story I personally know, and those stories aren't. Let me quickly say this episode isn't an indictment of the practice of medicine. One doctor literally saved my life. It was thought I had leukemia when I was a little over one year of age, and I was dying. One doctor was smart enough to realize that I didn't have leukemia at all. What I had was a severe infection that mimicked leukemia. If he hadn't intervened, I most likely wouldn't be here. Medicine is an incredibly tough career and one I greatly respect. I'm certainly old enough now to look back on my own life and see how I was being heavily influenced by the cultural concepts and social inequities of the day, that I couldn't see at the time. Whatever we all do in life is affected by the times in which we live, and it takes someone with great wisdom and courage to be able to see beyond, to detect a problem before the rest of society does. I'm sure there were doctors who practiced better medicine than what my mom got. But my mother's doctors didn't see what they were doing to her, and through the years she began hiding from her own truth as well. Both of those things, acting together, made my mom disappear. So in this episode, sponsored by BetterHelp, I'm going to share the story of my mom with you so that you just might look at your own life or your mom's or dad's, your friends, your partners, and more accurately view what's happening when taking pills is the one answer you or they count on to fix things. It's a highly dangerous choice. 
I'm not going to have a listener email today because I really wanted to end this episode about my mom. Start it with my mom and end it with my mom. I hope that you will allow me that respect for her. Thanks so much. My mother, Betty, as she was called, which she hated, her name was Elizabeth, but no one called her Elizabeth. So my mother, Betty, was a beautiful, talented, very smart woman who never believed a word of that. There were various reasons for her disbelief. Some of them I understood. Her own mother had been extremely harsh, very strict, and her relationship with her father was distant. She married my dad early in 1947 and had three children within the first six years of that marriage. There were other reasons for her disbelief that I didn't understand and may never, although I have my own ideas now as a psychologist why some of them existed. A lot of that is too private for me to share but I hope that she would want you to hear this part of her story. It was the 1950s. She was first and foremost a wife and mother, although she played the piano and organ beautifully, having studied one summer at Juilliard in New York. She rarely played, believing or culturally absorbing, that having a regular job or activity that took her away from home and children wasn't suitable. At age 35... She searched for help after her first panic attack. Now, she didn't call it a panic attack. I'm sure the doctor didn't either. By then, it was 1960. She described it to me years later, and I knew what it was. It was a panic attack. Here's how she described it. I was quietly attending a ladies' church circle meeting, and suddenly, my heart started pounding. I started perspiring. (laughs) My mother would never say sweating. She always said perspiring. (laughs) I was perspiring, and my hands grew clammy. All I wanted to do was run out of that meeting. These polite, reserved meetings weren't something my mom particularly enjoyed, but they were a duty for any proper Southern wife. And by the way, she was always called Mrs. Robinson. She signed her name like that, and when writing me, she would call me Mrs. So-and-so, whatever my last name was at the time. It's pretty funny. Now it's funny. After hearing her symptoms, her doctor gave her a sedative, given commonly at that time. Not often to men, mind you, most especially to women. He advised her to take it every day, and what did he call it? He said, you've got nerves, and dismissed her. It was probably Valium, which was often prescribed for anxious women, and Valium is a benzodiazepine, which now we know is highly physically and emotionally addictive. Thus began my mother's prescription drug addiction. As she went from doctor to doctor, her anxiety only growing and causing other problems, other drugs were prescribed. One was called Equinil, which was a minor tranquilizer. There was another, or barbiturate, Fioranol. She took Librium, and she used them daily for over 30 years. I remember when I was in graduate school, I got divorced for the second time, and of course, from time to time, I would get very upset. To help, my mother sent me a bottle of Fioranol. Because back then, you could simply tell the pharmacy in my hometown that you needed another bottle and they'd give you one. (laughs) One day, I was particularly upset while I was driving home from the state hospital where I was interning back in Dallas. And I popped a Fioranol. Oh, my God. I had to pull over several times. I was so woozy. 
I never took them again, or if I did, I was in bed and ready for a more restful sleep. No doctor ever stopped to try to help my mom understand the root of her anxiety. They just handed her more pills. It's true, now she didn't seek therapy. In my intro, I said that she played a part in what happened to her, blindly following her doctor's orders, taking pills that over the years she would defend, saying, I only take what's prescribed. Now, it's kind of curious about therapy, because when I began going to therapy in my early 20s, she paid for it. As I remember, she'd ask occasional questions about it, but I guess she never considered it for herself that I knew. She was all for me becoming a psychologist and was quite proud of me for getting my Ph.D., but therapy for her, it wasn't going to happen. I'm not sure what she might have been frightened about or in denial about, but there was something my mom never wanted to talk about. And so she simply took her prescriptions, and that solved the problem. No more anxiety, or if she felt some, she'd take another. She ended developing behaviors of an addict obtaining prescriptions from different pharmacies and different doctors. Underneath her beautifully polished, never-a-hair-out-of-place facade, my mother very secretly danced with her own demons. Before going on, let's hear from BetterHelp. (laughs) It's ironic that this episode is sponsored by a therapy service. BetterHelp has been a sponsor of self-work for at least a year or more, and I'm so glad to have them on board. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's actual professional therapy online. And as I've done much more virtual work during the pandemic, I've seen firsthand how effective and convenient virtual work is. When you contact BetterHelp, you'll get a response from a licensed therapist in as little as 48 hours, and they'll make sure you feel your therapist is a wonderful match for you. I, of course, tried this, and I was impressed with the therapist they presented to me as well as what the therapists themselves offered. And BetterHelp and I want 2022 to be your most mentally healthy year ever. So just visit betterhelp.com slash self-work and you'll get a special offer to get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash self-work. Hope you'll give it a try, especially getting 2022 off to a great start. So back to the story about my mom. I figured out the danger of the medications that my mother was taking. And I remember calling her and saying, gosh, mom, I never realized how strong and potent these medications were. And she said her usual, well, they're prescription. Of course, I also learned in graduate school about the multiple levels of anxiety my mother had. I recognized my mom's behaviors and beliefs in obsessive compulsive disorder Horrible worry is in generalized anxiety disorder, and although she wasn't a hoarder per se, she certainly was what she would call a saver. She also had an eating disorder, admonishing me often that a lady never finishes the food on her plate, but her anxiety was what was tantamount. To describe a few more of her OCD habits, she would buy multiple products all at once, hairspray, deodorant, then line them up in drawers. She'd do the same thing with certain clothes, like blouses. I thought everyone did that when I was little, and would copy her by lining things up in my own drawers. But then I learned that that was far from the case. She'd panic if she didn't have twin bottles of the same medicine. One, she said, was for home. The other lived in her travel bag, 
although my parents rarely traveled. But she would say quite rationally to me, but what if Dad got sick and needed medicine and the drugstore was closed? That was my mom's addiction talking and her need to feel like she was in control. Weeks prior to a party, the dining room table would be elegantly set, silver gleaming. She would check and recheck every detail. And also during the party, she would never eat. There's that eating disorder. Making sure every guest had all they needed. If someone was sitting alone, she would chat them up to make sure they felt welcome. And I should say at this point that after she died, many people told me how good my mother had made them feel. She'd notice others' discomfort and feeling bad and quickly move to ask if she could help or just help by being there. One more of her habits, she would get up hours before everyone to, quote-unquote, put my face on, as she called it. I don't think my dad ever saw my mom without makeup. Her need to look perfect and seem perfect, and sadly, her apparent inability to risk not looking or being that way, was the only way she knew how to live. It's a little ironic now, for I see that my mom was perhaps the first perfectly hidden depressed person I knew. The makeup, the hair she wore in the same style for years, her immaculate clothes, her extremely thin waist, all were cover-ups, masks for tremendous anxiety and insecurity. I never saw her cry. I never heard her voice raised in anger, although she slapped me one time. But she never yelled. She could be disapproving, yes. She was just highly controlled. In her late 60s, she realized she had a problem. What was happening was that she could no longer metabolize the medication, which often happens in older people. She was irritable, acting irrationally, driving erratically. I remember a long conversation we had. She actually had been trying to wean herself off the medication, and she could barely walk by herself. We were sitting side by side on the love seat in their den when she decided she would go for help. I was so very, very proud of her. We cried together, but it was also the last time she would be emotionally present with me ever again. She was in a rehab hospital between three and four months. She got off the drugs. They left her on an antidepressant and a very mild, non-addictive anti-anxiety med. That was it. I remember us talking on the phone. I was pregnant with my son and had been told I couldn't risk visiting her. She was in another state. All she said was, Margaret, I'm different. Those were her very simple words. I told her then, Well, Mother, I'll get to know and love the you that you are now. What I didn't know was that she had disappeared. Without the mix of sedatives, painkillers, barbiturates, tranquilizers, benzodiazepines. Betty was no longer Betty. She was a shell of herself and seemed to have aged 20 years. She was 68 or 69 at the time, and she lived another 15 years. But within those 15 years, she remained almost mute. She would speak when spoken to, smile only, when something inside of her remembered that that was a socially appropriate thing to do. She walked hesitatingly, and as the years went by, almost as if she had Parkinson's. I remember my brothers and I wondering if we'd even done the right thing by encouraging her to go for help. My father felt the same way. But she could have killed someone or herself driving, so we really didn't have a choice. This is what I want you to hear me say. 
Dependence on a drug is more than physiological. Emotional dependence can exist as well. My mother had forgotten how to live without her pills. She'd always been a prolific gift giver, for example, and she somehow knew how to figure out exactly what you'd like. But there were no more gifts. She'd write a card which stated what she always said every year, how proud she was. And of course, it was wonderful to get those cards, but there was no spontaneity. I might catch a glimpse of her old self if I called at just the right time, around 7.30 at night, because her rituals for the day would be over, so her OCD calmed down. She would ask a question or two, there would be a slight lilt in her voice, maybe she would laugh or ask about my son. It was welcome, but also very painful to hear, because I knew it would be a fleeting moment, and then she was gone again. She died suddenly, early one morning, as she was getting back into bed. It was quick, and I certainly pray, painless for her. We were shocked, because her physical health hadn't seemed to be a problem. When people came up to my brothers and me, my father couldn't attend the service because of his health. When they came up to me with condolences about her death, we'd look at one another, and of course we'd smile and say thank you. But our mother had died 15 years earlier. Some closest to my parents knew that. As my parents had become almost reclusive at home, my dad needing 24-7 care because of his physical health, my mom because of her anxiety. But to many attending her funeral, the beautiful Betty, the caring Betty, was who they remembered. And that made me very happy for them and for her. On this Mother's Day weekend, I know I am far, 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 far from the only person whose relationship with her mom was problematic. There are mothers who don't give the time of the day to their children, or even worse, make those days tragic and horrific. Mother's Day becomes a day to get through, to try to avoid the myriad places where moms and daughters are walking together, laughing, or you see pictures on Facebook or Instagram, and all there is in your heart is emptiness or confusion or bitterness. If you do enjoy a loving relationship with your mom, and you continue to do things together to build a sense of trust and intimacy, relish that time you have together. But maybe you're like me, and you have a mom or a dad that you're watching disappear with alcohol or drugs. Maybe they're in denial. Oh, I need it to sleep. It's prescription. I get up and work every day. It's not like I'm an alcoholic. But you see the changes in them. You aren't in denial of their problem. Only they are. I'd strongly recommend Al-Anon or Narconon. It helps to hear other people's wisdom and how they're choosing to stay in the relationship or sometimes go. But whatever it is, it's with much more emotional detachment. Just a few more words to say. We live in a culture glorifying escape. But even since I first wrote this piece around seven years ago, the medical profession has drastically reduced the number of opioids they prescribe, and I hope anxiolytics or benzodiazepines, for example, Drugs that are used to immediately soothe severe anxiety are also going to be analyzed for when they're abused. I know they are. People share them with their friends. Kids steal them from their parents. Now, I want to make sure you hear me say something. I know I have a bias here. And people whose anxiety is chronic may feel strongly that their medications they have to have to function. My history with my mom has made me ultra leery of these meds. But let me say, when you're going through an acute trauma or stress, they are wonderful meds and can help. What concerns me 
is when they're abused or overprescribed or is seen as the only option that could help. I really want you to hear me say that because I know that there are people who take them for sleep and perhaps they don't take them enough to actually be addicted. I would definitely recommend talking it over with your prescriber to see their opinion about it. I want to say something about what my mom would wish for you and for me. Escape can be very easy to justify, yet my mother's world was far from glorious. She whispered to me maybe two years before her death, using that halty, breathy voice that became all I would hear. I wish I had known what I was doing to myself. That's what she said. So you've heard her story. She would want you to know that there's another way. But to my mother, whether you ever knew it or not, you were beautiful and you were talented and you were smart. I missed you then and I miss you now. Thank you for being here at Self Work today. This was a very personal story and... I hope it's helped you to hear it. Thanks to those of you who've left ratings and reviews. Some of them have been for Perfectly Hidden Depression, my book that came out a couple of years ago. And as I said in the episode, I thought about my mom frequently when I wrote it. And of course, thank you for your ratings for self-work wherever you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts, because it's so huge. If you'd like, come join me at my Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. You can write me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can also leave me a voicemail, which I absolutely love when people do that. It'll give you a minute and a half to leave me your own personal message, of course anonymously, but I love to hear from you. And of course, if you subscribe to drmargaretrutherford.com, you will get a weekly newsletter that's the easiest way to keep up with me and the work I'm doing to get a blog post and a podcast every week. So I'd welcome you there. Again, thank you, my gratitude to you. Please take very good care of yourself, of your loved ones, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.